Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, he and I have written 35 cookbooks, including the one out this fall, the Instant Air Fryer Bible, fall of 2022, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. A book that's a step-by-step guide to using your Vortex or Omni Instant Brand Air Fryer, although truly you could use any air fryer with it. Amen. Still. And nonetheless, that is out this fall. But this show is not about air frying at all. It's about apples and particularly how apples can get you, well, a little inebriated. Oh, drunk apples. It's not about sauce. Well, it's about about the sauce. Oh, yeah, that sauce. (laughs) It's not about juice. It's not about cider, as it were. Instead, this is about the fermentation and distillation of apples and how they are used in those processes. So we're going to start with hard cider, which is different from the cider Mark just talked about. Right. The kids are really into cider these they days. They are really into cider these days. And Bruce is really into cider these days. Bruce likes drinking cider a great deal. Why is that? Because I used to love beer, but then I got the gout because I'm old. <laughs> and so now I don't drink beer and I drink the cider. The ailment of royalty. <laughs> you, you've got the disease of kings. kings yes. yes, exactly. Gout. And so uh, beer has a lot of yeast in it. It has a lot of uh, things that increase purine production anyway. That's and I know someone's going to write and say it's all alcohol. It's true. All alcohol causes purines, but beer is the worst. So yes. if I'm not going to give up alcohol, switching from beer to cider seemed like a natural progression. Right. So and hard cider, we call it in the States, hard cider, is a unique product that has become incredibly popular amongst 20-something, uh, what do we want to say, 20-something fermenting mm-hmm. <laughs> entrepreneurs. And they're everywhere. Like breweries that opened mm-hmm. up micro beer breweries, mm-hmm. now micro cideries are opening up everywhere, mm-hmm. and it's really great. So how do they do it? How do they make hard cider from apples? Well, it starts like you're making apple juice, right? You press the apples, you get all the juice out of them, and then you add some kind of, usually a white wine yeast, and that is very different than the yeast they use in beer, which is why I can drink it and not kick out. Right, and so there is cider fermentation with natural yeast it's very that because you know yeast is all around you in the air um but there is cider fermentation with natural yeast it is much slower but it is truly the preferred artisanal product because the natural yeast oh, i don't know what it leaves a lot of the apple flavor into the cider and the cider doesn't get quite so yeasty and heavy uh, the lighter ciders tend to be made with natural yeast so that that's not exactly true and Bruce and I took a trip to Asheville, North Carolina, and spent a week down there and had a wonderful time in Asheville, North Carolina. And we spent an entire day going from cidery to cidery. Mm. And again, it was mostly young entrepreneurs who were starting their businesses with lots of apples <laughs> and turning them into hard ciders. It's interesting, too, and I should say before we talk any more about fermentation, it's interesting that in the United States we say hard cider versus cider, which we mean uh, the kind of thick pulpy apple juice cider in the rest of the world mostly what we call hard cider is simply called cider yeah cidre en, en français uh, yeah right exactly but we make this distinction in the united states and um, some people uh, i've 
pointed that out to, and they have sneered at me, some of my European friends, as, oh, of course, Americans, they have to make this false distinction. But no, I think it's an important distinction because I think most of those places don't know the kind of cider that we talk about here in the United States, which is the very pulpy, yeah. thick stuff uh, that you can buy like at farmer's markets or in grocery stores and that kind Europeans of thing. Europeans also aren't big juice drinkers from no. my experience. No. It's like the whole thing of orange juice in the morning is an American thing. So yeah, when you get much. it there, it's an American thing. Yeah, right. So they're not used to like fruit juices unless they've been fermented. So what I do love about cider is they run the range from really sweet, flavorful, sugary ciders to very, very dry. And very dry. How do you get the difference? Well, it depends how long they ferment it. You can let it go until the yeast eats all the sugar that's in there, right. creating a very, very dry cider. And these ciders, some of these dry ciders, I should say, the yeast has eaten so much of the sugar, all of it, right, that they are zero-carb products. Which is really great if you have blood sugar issues. You can it's drink crazy. this stuff. Like, yeah, we'll get to some of those brands in a bit. So, but if you leave some sugar in it and then you bottle it, you do run the risk of exploding bottles. And that is a problem. Mm, like champagne. Um, yes, it is. And it's dangerous. Um, but it's done all the time in artisanal cideries and they know how to do it. And it's how you get the best stuff. And it's because, right, the yeast, yeast continues to eat the natural sugars that occur in the apple right. juice and put off the things yeast put off, including carbon dioxide, which, you know, increases the pressure right. as more and more of it builds up in the bottle. And as Bruce says, you can get exploding bottles at that point. Um, but, the, you know, it the, it is a very interesting, what do I want to say, uh, difficult line to walk between how dry and how sweet you want it. Because like some, champagne, just like you said, it's a yeah. difficult line. Yeah, exactly. Some ciders, hard ciders, as we say in the United States, some hard ciders are just far too sweet. They're mm. so sweet. Ugh, they're like, you, you might as well just have a Coke. But well, I agree. And then others are more sophisticated. Well, and just like champagne, you brought it up, so I'm going to say it back. You know, in champagne, they sometimes add a dosage, meaning after mm -hmm. they take the yeast out, they put mm -hmm. a little bit of sugar back mm -hmm. in and let that continue to ferment in the bottle. Mm -hmm. Well, the same thing happens with ciders. They can choose to do they don't call it a dosage because it's not champagne, or they could choose not to add any. And that gives us the different levels of sweetness as well. But either way, whether they add a dosage, they don't, whether it's sweet or whether it's dry, the bottles are then filled, capped, and then the important part here in American hard ciders is they are pasteurized. Yeah, this, right, this is interesting to me because you don't pasteurize champagne, and you don't pasteurize sparkling wine from California, and you don't pasteurize you know cava from spain so i assume this has to do with the amount of uh, molecular apple residue that's i assume that's what's going on here but there's grape residue too so i don't know well, it's maybe it's a european bacteria versus the american bacteria <laughs> Maybe it is. It is interesting that almost all hard ciders in the United States are pasteurized. Uh, and that's also a delicate operation because pasteurization is a high heat process and you can kill a great deal of flavor in pasteurization. So again, this is not for the the, the novice. Uh, this is not for the easy uh, way out. You'll notice there's a lot of home beer making kits out there that you'll also notice there aren't very many home <laughs> cider making 
making kits mm-hmm. out there. And that's because this is actually a fairly complicated and labor-intensive process. In other episodes, you've heard Mark and me talk about CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture, and we used to belong to one uh, mm-hmm. local farm called Chubby Bunny. The much-lamented demise of Chubby yeah, Bunny. And Dan and Tracy, who ran it, well, Dan was really crazy and fun. And he decided one year he was going to start making hard cider from the apples on their farm. Oh, and like 90% of all of his bottles exploded there in you the go. refrigerator. So there you go. it's really hard. And there is a reason why they don't have home and cider kits. Didn't we get a bottle of that? Didn't he give us a bottle of it? And it wasn't. No, I think I was afraid of it. Exactly I didn't, I didn't right. want exploding I I cider. It. And I think it wasn't exactly the best ever. So what are the best <laughs> ever? Well, let's talk about this. So we went to Asheville, as we said, and we did a lot of cider tasting. So you don't have to. <laughs> and uh, we discovered a place called Barn Door Cider Works in Asheville, North Carolina. And one of the things that's so interesting about Barn Door Cider Works is that they are barrel aging their cider. Mm-hmm. So All if, of their cider. If you think about white wine that is barrel aged, even American Chardonnays, don't think quite that far. But nonetheless, think about barrel aged cider. So you get a woody, oaky taste with the cider. It's super complex. Super wild. We sat out in their yard and drank a great deal of cider. We did. And what I find with the barrel aged stuff is because you have that more complex woody flavor, you need a stronger flavored cider to begin with. So Mm. they make a crab apple cider that was really fantastic because the crab apple juice they started with that they fermented had so much more flavor than other apples. And that stood up to the wood taste more than the lighter ciders do. I find that with their lighter ones, the cider flavor is sort of lost under the wood, and all you taste is wood. Right. So I, for me, I want a stronger flavored cider if it's going to be going to wood. Or if you're in our part of the world, you should check out Hilltop Orchards in Richmond, Massachusetts. That's just over the mountain from Pittsfield, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. in the Berkshires. There's a orchard there called Hilltop Orchards. They're making a lot of ciders. Their tasting room is really nice. We were in there a while back, and they had a beautiful fire going. Oh, they're so the nice. They're also wood-aged. Everything they had there is wood-aged. Yeah. And I should tell you that they are making apfelkorn. Okay, what's apfelkorn besides apple corn? (laughs) Apple grain, but (laughs) apple grain. But it is what it is, is a 19% alcohol Mm. cider. So it's a way bumped up alcohol loaded mm-hmm. cider and what would that be 38 proof that's that's getting on up there now and it is a sweet um kind of i don't know what i want to say it's not aquavit it's Mm-mm. sweet to me it was almost like a, a big heavy sauterne yeah it had, it had that quality, quality to it i would serve that with foie gras except foie gras and gout you know it's not a good combination <laughs> you should if you're ever in uh the berkshires in our part of the world in new england you should check out hilltop orchards uh, we should say we're not sponsored in any way mm-hmm. by them you should go there if you have kids because there are tons of trails trails through the orchards trails up to the top of the mountains and in fact if you have teenagers you can send them out on those trails and you could sit by the fireplace and sip apfelkorn so mm-hmm. uh, that sounds, sounds like a good me. thing and that you can even do this in the winter right yeah they have snowshoes hanging on the wall by the fireplace to so take the snowshoes go out hiking in the snow send the mm. kids out mm. um, make sure you give them a cell phone just in case there's problems <laughs> and you sit by the fire and drink apple corn and have a fire. So there's a second cidery in Asheville that we tried, Urban mm. Orchard Cider. And Urban Orchard Cider has very 
very different style from our barn door yeah, cider. Nothing boys. there was barrel aged. You walk into the bar first of all, it's a huge bar with a huge tasting room, mm. and there was about thirty taps across the wall, mm. and everything is on tap. And if you want cider to go, they'll fill one of those glass jars for you. And Didn't we get cider to take back to our Airbnb? I did. So I tasted yeah, a few, right. and the one that I brought back, which shocked both me that I got it and Mark when I told him what it was, it was a passion fruit and pineapple infused cider. And while I know that sounds really sweet and really gross and like in fact i told bruce i wouldn't drink it because i thought it was high c at first but it it didn't it was really good and i don't usually like fruit infused ciders but there was something about this one i really liked. and by my use of the word high c you know how old i am (laughs) (laughs) you know i was it's so depressing to get older i i saw a video explaining something the other day uh it was explaining about um, culture and I don't know retail culture in the United States and all and in the middle of the video they explained what a mall was <laughs> and I thought oh god I'm so old that now the kids are watching videos and having to be told what malls are oh my gosh okay and our final cider in this uh, lineup Barn Door Cider Works in Asheville Hilltop Orchards in Richmond Mass Urban Orchard Cidery in Asheville is Stowe Cider from and, Vermont yes and Stowe Cider is really interesting well they have a cider called high and dry in fact it is so dry there are no carbs it even says right on the bottle no carbs and to be honest almost no apple flavor left Mm. in it because they let it go so long Mm -hmm. um very very carbonated but it is very crisp very wet and refreshing and even a little yeasty crisp actually wet yeah. Really? Seriously? That's what you're going to say? That's Go what on. I'm going to say. And freshly opened tennis balls. And it has... That's... Oh, wait. <laughs> wait. Go ahead. What does it have? It Go has say what it has. shoelaces. No, <laughs> come on. Just what were you going to say? Really? It's a little yeasty. And then it has a, a champagne. It almost has that champagne quality chew it it's just i really love it yes so the love that there's no sugar the joke here is that bruce and i have this thing about wine tasting and that people say things that they don't really know what they mean and so we often try to describe wine as like freshly opened tennis balls or belly button lint or or, new shoelaces yeah new shoelaces and act like we're so smart and then (laughs) we come up with good flavor profiles for wine i like belly button lint and new shoelaces (laughs) that's exactly what i want in my burgundy earwax oh (laughs) gross just go through the birdie birdie beans all flavor jelly beans from harry potter and every one of those can be a good wine description excellent hey before we get to the next segment i'm going to ask a favor would you please subscribe to cooking with bruce and mark so if you're listening to this and like it you won't miss a single episode and if you're able to leave a comment leave five stars say something great like good podcast and that's all we need it really helps us out thanks As we do in every episode of this podcast, we offer a one-minute cooking tip, which we never stick to one minute. But what is it this time? Baking soda makes onions caramelize faster. It does. If you throw one-eighth to one-quarter of a teaspoon of baking soda for each pound of onions you are caramelizing, it makes them go faster. Why is that? It's all about the pH factor. Remember, your 
high school chemistry. It's all about the pH factor and the acidic and basic level of the onions and changing it. And the higher the pH, the faster the reaction. And what reaction? So the Maillard reaction. <laughs> more fancy words. More fancy words. Anyways, the sugars caramelize faster. And um, notice how little Bruce said an eighth to a quarter teaspoon per pound of, onions. of baking soda per pound of onions. It's very little. But there's no shortcut here. I mean, what we're talking about here is it cuts off right 10 minutes of time. It's 45 minutes instead of... 10 minutes is 10 minutes. Okay, it is. But it's 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 45 minutes or 40 minutes instead of 50 minutes. If you really, truly caramelize onions at a super low temperature, there's no way around it. It's labor-intensive. But you can cut off a little bit of that time with some baking soda. Up next... Bruce's interview with Ken Wurtz of Sauvage Distillery. They are in upstate New York, and they are making upstate vodka out of, you guessed it, apples. Today we're talking with Ken Wurtz at Sauvage Distillery. He makes upstate vodka in Charlottesville, New York, where he is handcrafting his vodka made from apples. Welcome, Ken. Thank you for having me. Most people make vodka from grain or potatoes. Presumably, they're cheap, but... Why did you choose to go more expensive route and make your vodka from apples? Well, in the craft distilling world, trying to stand out in the crowd requires you to a certain extent to differentiate yourself. And making quality vodka from apples is definitely a market differentiator. We're also a kosher facility, and it is much easier for us to maintain that kosher certification with apples than it is with some of the grain-based products. I can imagine, especially around the holidays, around Passover, that must become a huge plus for you. You get to uh, label your bottles kosher for Passover, where a lot of people can't do that if they have grain hanging around their facility. That's correct. So we are, we do do bottlings for kosher for Passover. The requirements for that are even more stringent than they are for our day-to-day kosher product. Let's talk about the process of creating vodka from apples as opposed to potatoes or grain. So the difference is primarily in the pre-fermentation process. With grain-based products, you're going to grind your grains or you're going to get your grains and they've already been ground. And then you effectively are making a mash that's similar to beer with the grains, uh, which requires you to actually cook them, heat them up uh, so that you get the conversion from uh, the carbohydrates into sugars. And then you can ferment the sugars. And then with the apples, you're not grinding them, but you do have to effectively press the apples uh, into cider. And from the cider, you're ready to go to fermentation. And then you ferment the cider. And once the fermented cider is completed, you have what you would call a, a hard apple cider or a apple wine. Um, you can use those terms interchangeably. And then you're distilling the apple cider or hard cider uh, into uh, the vodka. Um, and with vodka is also a little bit different than, uh, for instance, a brandy or a whiskey. With brandy and whiskeys, on your first distillation, you would look to distill up to, you know, maybe 140, 145 proof. With vodka, you're distilling all the way to 190 proof, you know, 95% of what goes into the vodka is ethanol. And that last 5% is where you get the different nuances between uh, the various vodkas that you can taste. Vodka is a neutral spirit. 
Um, but even the neutral spirits do have different flavor profiles. I can very easily pick out the difference between Grey Goose, um, Smirnoff, Tito's, uh, and then, of course, Upstate Vodka. Each one of them has their own character. How many times do you distill your vodka and... Is this how you retain any essence of the apples? Is it by how much you distill it? How much you distill it is is an interesting question because it's to a certain extent clouded by the actual design of the stills themselves. The stills that we have, uh, they are pot stills. So we are uh, batch distillers, uh, not continuous distillers. So we can start with a... In our largest still, uh, 750 gallons of cider will go in. And I can distill it using two columns. And each of those columns has a plate. And I'm sure you've seen the pictures. You've got the little windows for each chamber within the, the column. Each of those chambers in and of itself acts as a mini still. Um, so your vapors are going up and then going through the column. And as you go through the column, you hit each one of these chambers and you're redistilling again and so forth and so on as you go through each of those chambers in both columns. The columns are set up in serial. So you go through column one and then you go through column two. So, I mean, you could argue that it's, if we're using all of the column, all of the, the chambers or plates, um, you could argue that it's distilled, you know, 15, 16 times. We do not distill with all of the plates engaged for the very reason you alluded to before. Um, we do like to retain just a little bit of a hint of the apple if you're looking for it. But our general process is we do go through that batch process at least twice um, on different stills. We have one still we use for our first distillation. Then we have another still that's our primary still for the second distillation. And then for other projects, uh, we have four additional stills that are much smaller that can be used for, uh, in essence, special projects. Would a batch of vodka ever come out of the still the second time and you taste it, you smell it, and would you ever think we need to do that another time? It certainly does. Um, I'm not thrilled when it happens. <laughs> um, uh, because it's time and energy. But yes, we have two people who will taste finished product or what is to be finished product. And if we're not satisfied with the quality, we will go back through the process. Again, uh, it is rare, I think maybe once or twice in the last decade, um, that we abandon a batch, but having to go one more time around, it's not that uncommon. So you taste it when it comes out of the still, but you're tasting it there at 190 proof. No, 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 no. Kind of a funny story on, on this tasting that I'll share with you. While I was distilling, I was also still working in the corporate world. And when I was working in the corporate world, I would often have to take clients out for dinners or even to a pub or a bar for drinks. And of course, I'm the vendor and they're the customers. And they would often order very expensive bourbons or whiskeys from the bar. And some of those whiskeys come at barrel strength. And barrel strength typically is in the 130 range or so. I would ask them, are you going to put a little splash of water in that? And they would say no. And 
okay, suit your purposes, but I would be chuckling to myself because your taste buds don't process very well, anything over 120 proof. So I'm thinking they just spent $30 on a very nice whiskey and they tasted it for about a split second. <laughs> and then their taste buds are in effect burnt. So they can't taste it properly. So yes, um, coming off the still, we're at 190 proof, but we will water that down and bring it back down to what the consumer's going to taste it at, at the 80 proof. And so we do our tastings at 80 proof. And occasionally I will bring it down even a little bit lower, you know, somewhere around 60 proof, because you will get a slightly different nuance at 60 proof than 80 proof. If you're looking for any off notes or in some cases, something that, that just seems slightly different than, than what we normally have. So lower proof makes it easier to basically taste everything. So let's talk about that water you use to lower the proof. Clearly, that water is a large percentage of the vodka. It must have a great impact on the flavor of the finished product. Where is your water coming from? Lots of folks don't realize um, New York City is probably one of the largest municipal water systems that doesn't require treatment. Um, the water comes uh, from a series of reservoirs some of the largest of which are in Schoharie County, the county where our distillery is. So we have really good water for blending. We don't have to treat it in any way, shape, or form. It's just good water. Um, if you have water that has too high a mineral content after you blend, you'll get crystallization that takes place in the bottles. It doesn't really impact the flavor necessarily, but certainly visually it will upset people. If your water is too high in iron or sulfurs, you will definitely taste that in the product. So we are blessed to have our distillery in Schoharie County where the water is good enough to be untreated for the city of New York. Well, New York State is really known for amazing apples. Do you grow your own and what varietals go into your vodka? Well, we certainly have apple trees on the property. But there becomes a certain level of production where it's no longer feasible. You kind of have to choose. Are you going to be a grower or are you going to be effectively a producer of spirits or ciders? You know, 20 years ago when I got into distilling, I thought I could do both um, and, and had a relatively medium-sized orchard. My family had been growing apples for a couple of hundred years. I still have a cousin running a farm that's been in the family since the 1700s. So I do know a lot about apples. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I got into distilling apples. And the best apples for spirits are different depending on what you're going to be making. If you're going to be making a hard cider or a brandy, you're going to want apples that are higher in tannin than your typical apples that you would be buying in the in the grocery store, you know, like a red delicious. Uh, you don't want those. You actually want the apples that, you know, when you find wild apple trees and you bite them, it seems to suck the saliva out of your mouth <laughs> and they're a little bit bitter. They make fantastic brandy and they make uh, fantastic hard ciders because they have a higher tannic value than typical dessert apples. But on the vodka side, I want a little bit less of those kind of apples and a little bit more of the dessert apples because 
in effect, you are distilling out the flavor um, when you're distilling vodka. And the higher tannic value of those apples that I would say are great cider apples would complicate the distilling process. Does that subtle essence of apple that remains after you've distilled the cider into your vodka, does that change depending upon the mix of apples you began with? And maybe you could taste that, but is that something most people might be able to discern? Most people would not be able to discern between um, different batches, but we also do a lot of blending to make sure that we, we don't have that. The apples from the beginning of the season to the end of the season um, are in fact different varieties. So there is a blending process that takes place on our end of the actual ciders that have gone through fermentation before distilling so that, that we're in essence controlling for that at, our, at, at the production end. I know there are some specialty potato and blueberry vodkas that retain a lot of essence of those original products and they make them difficult to use in cocktails. Is your vodka best, in your opinion, on its own, or is it a good cocktail vodka? Well, it is most definitely an excellent cocktail vodka. That is one of the things that, that we test to make sure we're staying on track, that it does, in fact, make very good cocktails. Um, but whether we're talking about whiskey or vodka, I'm a distiller. I will add a little bit of water. When water and ethanol bind, it does a couple of interesting things. First, you know, one plus one does not equal two. When you're adding uh, a whiskey or a vodka to water, it equals like 1.99. It shrinks. So the combined package is smaller than each of the packages standing side by side at the molecular level. And what's given off is heat. So a couple of drops of water in a whiskey warms it a little bit and helps it open up. So you're going to detect on the nose uh, more than you would if you were just drinking it very neat, just a small amount of water. Um, with vodka, I truly enjoy it just neat. I typically would not add water to, to, to vodka to enjoy it. You market your vodka as gluten-free, but isn't all vodka gluten-free by nature? In theory, my personal belief is that the glutens would be eliminated in the distilling process. However, there are people who will not buy grain-based spirits. And so the gluten-free certification gives them that guarantee that there are no glutens, not, there's no glutens in the facility, period. That's a huge point that all you have in your facility are apples and yeast, basically. Yes, that's correct. Well, I love the work you're doing at Sauvage Distillery. Your upstate vodka made from apples is refreshing. It's bright. It's amazing. Thank you for spending some time explaining your process with us. And I appreciate your time and your great vodka. Hi, thank you very much for having us. Come visit us sometime. I'd be more than happy to show you around. Wow. Okay, so we're going to be drinking a lot of hard cider and a lot of vodka. And I guess we're going to be really happy all summer long. Uh, what can I tell you? Apples are such an interesting product to use. Thanks, Bruce, for that interview with Ken fascinating stuff about how to carry on a distillery with apples. So our final segment of the podcast, as usual... 
What's making us happy in food this week? You go first. Leftover Passover candy. Oh. And here's why. <laughs> here's why. Because my favorite Passover candies are those chocolate-covered marshmallow oh. twists and the chocolate-covered raspberry jelly rings. But oh. because they're kosher for Passover, you pay like $30 a pound for them. But now that mm. Passover is over... All the supermarkets have them marked down to like a dollar a box. It, so you're I still get, overpaying. So I get my chocolate-covered oh. marshmallows for a dollar a box. That's oh. $2 a pound. <laughs> and I love... When I say leftover, I mean, you know, marked down on sale Passover candy you still is making me happy You're overpaying <laughs> for those jelly rings. Mm. Gross. And the fruit slices. Oh. Mm. Eek. Mm. Oh. What's making you happy? Well... <laughs> It ain't Easter candy, I can tell you that. Um, so, so in this relationship, what's making the goy happy is uh, dinner parties. We are actually, uh, on, recording this, we are thinking about a dinner party tomorrow night. And I just have to tell you that Bruce and I throw a lot of dinner parties. And we throw big extravagant plated affairs multi-course the one that's coming up tomorrow night as we're recording this it four courses it involves pheasants it involves rack of lamb it involves all kinds of fabulous things it involves lemon mousse yum and all kinds of great and interesting things bruce gets to be as creative as possible as the chef that's his job in our duo as a chef and you know listen this is the truth. We write books like the Air Fryer books and the Instant Pot books where Bruce has to be extremely creative, but he's in a very small box. And, and I'm a very large person. Yeah, he is a 6'4 <laughs> person. And he is a, a very large person in a very small box. But in dinner parties, he can be as creative as he wants to be. And I mean, we do this plated affair. We do restaurant service. It's insane. We open great wines and we have friends over and we spend three, three and a half hours at the table. And it is just one of the best things in life. And sometimes I think our friends are indulgent of us and <laughs> indulgent of our weirdness. And sometimes I think that they come specifically to honor Bruce's creativity. And so I love dinner parties and that's what's making me happy in food this week. So that's our episode. We talked all about how apples can get you drunk and how you can caramelize your Oy. onions faster. We Oy. hope you enjoyed this. And we look forward to seeing you on another episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.